cartridge blowers out there this is n64 live with myself cliff foster aka the amazing cliff on the old twitter your guide through the world's greatest computer game console of all time the nintendo 64 and this isn't just any old episode no ladies and gentlemen this console that i've been talking about since october Today, this is the day I'm recording, today turns 25 years old. Yes, because on the 23rd of June 1996, this console was launched in Japan. And oh, I, I, I have been doing so much research. I mean, so, 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 so much research of what happened in those prior years before its launch in 1996 and i can't wait to do this podcast with you all obviously we are on the old twitch we're getting very close to that 200 follower mark so if you aren't already following the twitch channel at n64 life podcast now if i hit the 200 i'm still saying if even though we're 39 away if I hit that 30, uh, sorry, uh, 200 mark, then I have to play in its entirety <sighs> Superman 64. I don't know why I do this to myself. I don't know. Why am I, why am I doing, it's only me doing, it's my decision, oh, for God's sake, why am I doing this to myself? Uh, but... If you do come along, if you do get involved, if you do get in those chats, you can earn yourself chat points. And one of those things that you can claim is a shout out. And here are the people. We got quite a few this time for a shout out for this podcast. We have Christian, Christian in there. We got Misha, a friend of the podcast on the last mini history set, which was mini history of Zelda. We've got Matty Boo. We've got Morpho, who was on the last podcast. He just won shout outs left, right and center. We've got a newbie to the podcast, but really appreciating the support she's given so far is incredible. And that's Pink Lithium. And then we've got the OG subscriber, Stephen, as well. So thank you so, so much for all of your support. Um, yeah, this is going to be an interesting podcast because it's going to be like nothing I've done before because I had to do so much research into oh, just what's rumor, what's fact. You know, I had to use books, I had to use websites, I had to use YouTube videos. I mean, like the amount of research before I even wrote anything down. It's just oh. so here we are. Ladies and gentlemen, a mini history of Project Reality. Happy birthday to that bloody lovely black box. But let's do this. In the beginning, there was nothing. Well, okay, maybe not quite nothing. Stay calm. 
the Super Nintendo, the SNES, the SNES, however you want to refer to it. One of the greatest consoles of all time, not just by opinion, but by fact of sales, by the legacy that it left on the industry. It was, I mean, just a juggernaut of a machine. 49.1 million uh, units sold of the console and really defined that 16-bit era with such classics as Super Mario World, F-Zero, um, Mario Kart, which was phenomenal and see that some of these brands still go on today like Super Metroid, Star Wing or everywhere else star fox uh zelda link to the past which is arguably one of the greatest games of all time and definitely one of the greatest games of all time in that 16-bit era you had groundbreaking games such as donkey kong country stables that would stick around and have a following forever like street fighter 2 where it really gained a home on the console and that final fantasy series as well as smaller franchises that have such a big lovely cult following like pilot wings these really define the era but they weren't alone 16-bit arcade graphics. 16-bit arcade action. You can't do this on the 16-bit arcade hits. You can't do this on the Nintendo. Genesis does. What in the UK, we knew it as the Mega Drive. Across the pond, you knew this as the Sega Genesis. Now, if you're looking at numbers, technically, the SNES won the war because there was only 30.5 million units sold of this. But it still was a groundbreaking console, bringing such arcade classics like Mortal Kombat to a generation on their home consoles. I mean, this was an era-defining, amazing console. But there was one little fella that really stood out on this. Also, a happy birthday to this fella, Sonic the Hedgehog. Now, with, with Nintendo, they had this the little Italian plumber that sort of stuck around for... Years and years and years and years and years and years. And the story behind Sonic the Hedgehog is a hell of a story to listen to. Now, I'm going to direct you. Not now. You you continue listening. Yeah, I see you. I see you. You shouldn't be doing that while listening to a podcast. But I tell you what, after you've listened to me, go and check out Tom Campbell's History of Sonic the Hedgehog. It's available absolutely everywhere. I mean, it's a delightful little listen. And it will nicely follow on from our conversations today. Um, But when you look at the end of this generation, Nintendo and Sega were a really weird trajectory. So you had Sega, you know, we're on them, so let's talk about them. They were so much infighting. Between Sega of America and Sega Japan, 
I mean, like, it was, it was, they didn't know whether they were going to keep the Mega Drive going with add-ons or if the, they would just create a new console. You know, they were bickering about absolutely everything because it was almost this massive power struggle of where this brand would go. Um, yeah, again, go and listen to Tom's <laughs> if you want to understand a bit more with that. Um, and yeah, they didn't know whether they were going to go down their new 32-bit console. Now, th th we could look at this infighting with all the players in Sega, but th there's a real big man that is a huge part of this infighting that could well be seen to change the industry and this man was a guy called james h clark now james h clark founded a company in 1982 called silicon graphics that would later acquire um mips i'm gonna say mips uh technologies uh as a processor developing company you know they they really you know clark would uh he, he, he had these ideas of, you know, using computers to actually enhance viewing experiences for movies as well as computer games. And what he would do is he, he wanted to push his ideas onto these next-gen consoles because with the 16-bit era, it definitely defined the fact of that these, these weren't child's toys, you know, a computer con a game console wasn't a child's toy anymore. It was a multi-billion pound industry or a projected multi-million pound industry at that time. Billion pound industry at that time. So he really wanted to push his ideas and he went to Sega. He originally went to Sega and said to them, look, th this is my idea for your next gen console. Then we come back to this internal struggle because... It's, it's, this just shows you the difference between that American team and that Japanese team. The, the, the American team loved the idea, but the Japanese team not so much and stopped the partnership in its tracks and were almost like, well, no, we can deal with this internally. We are Sega, you know, we, we battled and we fought our way in the last generation Raw. We can do this again. And, you know, it, it, it's a weird old thing. You think to yourself, if Silicon Graphics had actually gone with Sega, would we have the N64 that we do now? Um, so we, before we go on to that, Nintendo had their own plans. And it's quite an entertaining story because in 1991, they started work on their new add-on for the SNES. Um, so they, they were going to create this CD add-on uh, for the SNES and... They, they were flirting with this company that came up with this great idea and, you know, this company wouldn't ever go on and do anything, really, in the gaming world, you know. But their add-on was called the PlayStation. And it was going to attach to the bottom of the snares and, yeah, or they were looking into the next generation consoles. So Nintendo were flirting with a lot of companies at this time and... Basically, what they did was they were they were flirting with Sony and made Sony feel like it was a done deal. Obviously, it wasn't. And Nintendo started sniffing around Philips because their CDI had just been released and they saw some potential in it, um, allowing Philips to create a Mario game and a Zelda game. We won't talk about those because they weren't very good. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, it, it was that element of that 
you know, Sony found out about this agreement with Philips and they they were like, hang on, hang on a minute, Nintendo. We had an agreement here. And Nintendo was like, yeah, we do. We changed our, changed our minds. And uh, yeah, we're going to go with Philips. And at this point, Sony went, well, we're going to go create our own console with, with Blackjack and something else. And uh, yeah, Nintendo went, oh, g g g look at you. Well done. Oh, don't worry. You go and create your own console. <laughs> They'll never be back again. Uh. <laughs> and this is one of the early stories and i get asked this a lot um when people find out about it saying what could have been um you've got to remember sony you know it's not like they had you know a a finished playstation sat in front of them a lot of people do think that you know that in these uh very early stages it was an add-on for the snes originally it was gonna be an add-on for the SNES. Um, and then they were going down the route of Philips uh, with the CD. Now, I don't know, and I can't really find out a reason why, but they quickly turned around to themselves and went, actually, no, we're going to stick with cart. <laughs> and I don't know if that was because maybe, you know, CDI obviously isn't the best console there's ever been and it's not the best selling console there's ever been so i don't know exactly why nintendo went off of that route now there's some uh, very 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 early pictures of project reality as a cd based console so it, it wasn't one of those things that straight off the bat of um you know the cdi failure I think I think it was definitely a decision that was made over a period of time. I just can't find, unfortunately, anything official to say this is when we decided to go across the cart. Because, as I said, there were some very early images um, that uh, Ash Versus from Under Consultation sent me of it being a CD-based console. So... We, we have those struggles. Uh, Nintendo may have created a problem for themselves in a couple of years' time. And basically, this is where we re-enter with uh, Silicon Graphics. And the birth of Project Reality. And with an eye to the future, tomorrow begins today. Nintendo, the world's leader in video games, has joined forces with Silicon Graphics, the world's leader in visual computing, to introduce the most exhilarating, breathtakingly realistic 3D video entertainment ever witnessed. Project Reality. Leagues beyond any currently available or anticipated hardware, Project Reality will bring to home video players the same types of astounding visual effects seen in movies, like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. When this technology is made interactive, players won't just watch their TV screens, they'll dive headfirst right through them.
like a dream come true that, that sort of takes your imagination, go way off. This kind of stuff is just rocket, and it's much better when it's fast. Sound. Oh, yeah, a lot of action, cool graphics. Whoa! We don't just want to play the games, we want to be right inside them. That may have felt like the 21st century, but these phenomenal effects will be dazzling arcade game players this time next year. And by the end of 1995, Project Reality will be a reality to all home players as well. No other system will offer this dimension of realism. No other manufacturer can promise this scope of play. With this marriage of game-making expertise and technical wizardry, home video entertainment just took on a whole new dimension. So as you can hear there, you know, Project Reality was now a thing. It was it was a li living, breathing thing um, through that uh, announcement back in the, the August 23rd, 1993. Um and and it was, I mean, go. I'll put the um, I'll put the links uh, in the description. But that video, you, you're seeing graphics on there that technically, if you're looking at it, yeah, I'll be honest, these aren't graphics that we see in this generation. <laughs> these aren't graphics that we would even see in the next generation. Really. If you're looking at it, especially like there's some cityscopes and, you know, the uh, there's oceans and monuments. And I mean, like, if you look at the detail there, and I was myself, I'm like, you're not really seeing that until maybe last generation with the Xbox One and the uh, PS4. You're not seeing it in the N64 generation. But at least it showed Silicon's va uh, Silicon Graphics' um, real passion uh, behind changing the industry. Um, and afterwards, it, it's weird in this development cycle, you know, Project Reality's been announced now. Nintendo have said, we are going forward with a 64-bit console. We're missing the 32-bit wars. We're going straight for 64. And the it goes, like, we, we get several times like this where it just goes a bit quiet. Because even though Nintendo might have been a bit quiet about their new console, that didn't mean that they didn't set silicon uh, graphics to work straight away. And 
they would go and use their 3D modeling to create, you know, these incredible textured 2D games. And they created a classic. They created a classic, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, Uni Racers, that classic known as Unicycle Racers. You know, they used it and they pushed it to its extreme with this great classic game. But they did create another game. And this game could be seen as as revolutionary as the N64 itself. Now, at this point, Nintendo were branching out. They, were, they weren't just doing everything internally anymore. I think they learned their lessons from when Sega appeared that they couldn't just do everything themselves. They had to get other companies involved. And one of those companies was a little one based in Leicestershire, England. This company created such arcade classics, such as Jetpack, um, Attic Attack, uh, Saber Wolf, and Night Law. And they, they've they been around since, you know, being formed in 1985 and relatively small company. And during the Snares era, they would go on to create a game called Battletoads that would push them into the face of Nintendo of here we are. We are creative. And this company would remodel itself as Where Rare. Now, for the benefit of me really struggling saying the two words together... From now on, we are just going to call this rare, this rare company, this rare talent, this rare in, enthusiasm behind the business. It's just rare. And with the success, as I said, of some of these um, these games that they created in the past, um, Nintendo took Rare under its ring. And gave them full use of the new CGI, uh, sorry, SGI uh, computers and one of its biggest IPs. Now, at this point, if you were to say to anyone Donkey Kong, they would think back to the classic of the 80s where Mario would go and save another princess um, <laughs> from a big old ape at the top, throwing barrels down on you. Now, so Donkey Kong at this point was dead in the water, but Silicon Graphics and Rare would bring him to a whole new dimension, adding a new character called Diddy Kong, hashtag justice for timber, um, and, you know, creating what, with a team of only 20, this absolutely stunning, stunning 3D modelled game. And, and at the time, um, Sega were announcing, obviously, the the Sega uh, Saturn. PlayStation were announcing that they were joining the market. And at this point, Nintendo just came in and said, we're producing a platformer. But not any old platformer. And originally being seen as, oh, well, they're just producing another platform game for their console until it was seen and donkey kong country would go and revolutionize what we know as a platform game and has such a cult following like such a cult following to me and it's the most played snes game that i have um it's it's an incredible 
incredible game and it was really well received it was nine million copies later two sequels and a spin-off um would see you know donkey kong really burst on the scene it did also have a cartoon but let's let's not talk about the cartoon <laughs> wouldn't talk about the cartoon oh for god's sake we spoke about the cartoon uh, <laughs> and even with the cartoon <laughs> it was a great success i mean awesome success which meant that nintendo had even more um more confidence behind this little uh, british developer um, and set them to work straight away. They, they set them to work using the CGI computers to then create what would be their their competition to the fighters out there. You know, the, I don't know. Yet again, I couldn't find too much with what happened to Street Fighter over this time. Because Street Fighter was their big, 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 big brand. Then, obviously, with the whole Mortal Kombat, you know, originally only having sweat in uh, number number one, but then going full blood and gore for number two and number three. It, it, it's one of those things that I tried to look so hard of what actually happened with them. But there must have been something because it actually set Nintendo off to go and get Rare to create their own fighting game for their next gen console. And eventually they would turn around and say, actually, no, 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 we need it now. We need it now for the SNES. And that series was Killer Instinct. Now, we've been on to Killer Instinct before. We've we've done a big deep dive into Killer Instinct and the history behind that brand. Um, so if you haven't listened to it already, go and listen to the podcast, which was Killer Instinct versus Mortal Killer Instinct Gold Apologies versus uh, Mortal Kombat 4. Um, but they, they set it forward. And in fact, they, they set them on a, a task of quite a few games. And a couple of them were for the next gen. A couple of them were for the current gen. Um, and one of those ones for the current gen would do the opposite. It would do a bit of a switch reverse because Rare Rare got a uh, a IP out of left wing um, for the new James Bond movie, and originally was going to be a game that would be a side-scrolling shooter um, released for the SNES. But they decided to push it back to the N64, and we'll go on to that game in a little bit, shall we? They were also developing such games as Blastozer. Blastozer, yet again, we've done this on a podcast as well. Blastozer was a really unique idea that there was a nuclear bomb. For some reason, going through cities. I don't know why it's still going through cities. Why is that even a thing? Okay, right, we're going to save the rants for this podcast. But they were creating a a. a a game called Blastozer, which would eventually be known as Blast Corpse. And, you know, this is this is where, you know, if we go back to the console itself, you know, we leave Rare because, you know, Nintendo were developing, you know, very good connections with a couple other brands that we'll go into in a minute. But everything goes a bit quiet until they announce 
a, a partnership again with another company as well as Silicon Graphics, which was Rambus Inc. And they would be fitting these new consoles with four megabyte uh, RD, uh, RD RAM uh, live memory alongside the Silicon Graphics processor um, with rare midway and Acclaim doing the lion's share of developing now. I mean, they were doing the absolute lion's share of it and not much coming from the studio in Japan or nothing being announced from the studio in Japan. It seemed to just be all outsourced at this present moment in time, as well as, you know, brands like um, DMA Designs, um, which we've been into on a couple occasions before um, we've with Silicon Valley. Um, but there is a huge game that we would go more in depth as these months and weeks go on with uh, a game called Body Harvest. Yeah, the development cycle of Body Harvest. Um, with Claim announcing that they had um, they they had acquired uh, Valiant Comics um, that would be and they would be creating one of their IPs, uh, their comic IPs, into a computer game. And that little guy was Turok, uh, the dinosaur hunter, and um, you know, as well as Nintendo going completely left wing. And I mean, absolutely, completely referring of getting a paradigm, 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 paradigm. We're going to say paradigm uh, uh, simulation. Um, more used. They, the, the company were more used to not creating computer games. They were creating simulations for the U.S. military and NASA, and they, they they put on a little bit of a show for Nintendo. And Nintendo went, "That's great." we've got an ip for you that worked really well for the snares and we want to keep this going and they were put to work on pilot wings you 64 and it is it, there's so much going on in the background with nintendo where they're concentrating outside of their own company or it seems that they are but there's a lot happening in the background and then 1995 comes along and you know it's it's a bit like Come on, Nintendo, you've got something. You've got to do something. Because in 1994, you had the release of the PlayStation and Sega's Sega Saturn. You know, they and these two were battling out childishly saying, well, we've got it for this price, we've got it for this price, we've got it for this price. And it, 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 it was like, come on, Nintendo, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. You've got to release something. You're going to be left behind. And finally, finally in 1985, the silence came to an end. It finally came to an end because Project Reality had been given a name. And that name was the Ultra 64. And one of the nice things that I think about with this is that the Ultra 64 was announced on the first ever E3. So it's announced on the first ever E3. And they they only have one tech demo to show people. Now, if we're looking at the companies that Nintendo were working with at this time, they were growing new relationships, they were passionately putting bits aside in one project, you know, th there was one there was one developer it could always trust on. There was always one developer 
outside of a Nintendo itself to create them a classic. And only really seconds by, in my opinion, uh, their own brand of Zelda. You know, and that company was a company called Squaresoft. And obviously, we all know, I'm not going to teach you like that suck eggs. You know, Squaresoft produced the amazing series of Final Fantasy. Uh, depending on number where you live. Um, but their final one, Final Fantasy VI, you know, I, I think that it, it was incredible, uh, incredible, credible game uh, for the SNES. And yeah, I think that Nintendo just thought they'd be around forever. And this tech demo showed a uh, a fully real, uh, re-realized um, uh, version of Final Fantasy VI, uh, completely 3D modeling and showing off what silicon graphics could really do with computer games. And it did look great. It looked fantastic. But silicon graphics had one gripe. And they were really worried about what they could do and what they wanted to do with Final Fantasy VII. And if they could on a cartridge-based system. Now... This is one thing, you know, I, I've seen it a lot, even this week as we're coming up to today, of what could have been. That's all that anyone's talking about. What could have been? You know, what what mistakes have Nintendo made in the past? And always that thing of if the N64 had not been cartridge-based. Now, we'll go into, obviously, what happened with Final Fantasy VII in a minute. Now, in my honest opinion... Quality and the quality of graphics for the N64 do outweigh the PlayStations. Now, I'm not saying I hate the PlayStations. I don't think this is a WCW versus WWF situation. And people online, you need to stop pretending it is. Because, I mean, I would go over a friend's house and absolutely love playing Dino Crisis. I didn't own it, but I love going over his house and playing Dino Crisis or the Resident Evil series before Resi 2 came out for... Uh, the, the N64, I mean, there was a Grand Theft Autos, you know, I, I, I mean that I would enjoy going around my friends' houses and playing PlayStation. I owned an N64, though. It didn't mean that I would go tribalistic and say, well, mine's better. There were certain games, you know, especially the Final Fantasy fr franchise versus the Zelda franchise, where I'll be like, nope, 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 Zelda's better. Uh, but at the same time, I did love going around my friend's Hugh's house and watching him play Final Fantasy VII. There wasn't, I mean, there wasn't that basis of, this is cack. It was more the basis of, I just think mine's better. But there was, I mean, that I was jealous of him having Grand Theft Auto, things like that. So let's put it out there now. I know this is a random place to stick this, but everyone, stop getting tribalistic about retro consoles. It wasn't like that at the time, so don't be like it now. But there was, you know, if, if we look in hindsight, Nintendo did create their own beast because quite like the position that they took, you know, with um, Sony um, when they were trying to develop the PlayStation add-on, they pretty much turned around to Squaresoft and said, well, we're going cartridge-based. This is what it is. You know, th this is what we'll give you, yada, yada, yada. And Squaresoft went, well, we're going. And Nintendo sort of went, Okay, you won't make it elsewhere. You won't do anything with your new game without us. And Nintendo 
constantly did this in this generation. And a Sega to an extent as well. Where it was almost like, well, we're the kings. No one's going to take us down. And then Final Fantasy 7 appears on the PlayStation 1. And yeah, fair to say, it, it, it did all right. <laughs> 12, 12.8 million copies later. <laughs> wow. Wow. Because there is always the conversation, you know, we'll go into it now. Uh, if if Final Fantasy would have ever worked, uh, you know, because there's a couple of games that came across uh, to the console, you know, later on, like Resident Evils of the World. There were a couple of ports that came across. Would it have ever worked because it was a multi-CD game, let alone just being a cd memory it was multiple cds with a lot of cutscenes a lot a lot a lot a lot a lot of cutscenes now would it have worked now if uh, i may have already mentioned this on a podcast before but during that time uh when we did start to see ports come across nintendo had an idea this is going a bit off topic but nintendo did have an idea of a multi-cartridge system um, and that game that was testing it was Banjo-Tooie. Um, but I believe they said that there was only... When you took the cartridge out to put in the next cartridge in, this is one of the problems. We'll go into the main problem in a minute. There was only a five-second gap, I think, you had uh, before it absolutely crashed it. And then the other problem would be, at the time, a cart would cost you 60 quid. That's going to be 120 quid or over 80 quid for a multi-cart bloody game so it, it wouldn't have ever worked it wouldn't have ever worked and i'm glad in a way as a retro gaming nut you know i do love the n64 don't get me wrong but i'm glad that final fantasy did leave nintendo I, i'm glad squaresoft made that decision because final fantasy 7 in argument you know we I won't say anybody's wrong for preferring Final Fantasy VII over uh, Zelda Ocarina of Time because both are triple-A games. We, we, you hear that term all the time, but in my opinion, a triple-A game is something that will stand the test of time. It will be something that we talk about for years and years and years and years and years to come. And Final Fantasy VII and Ocarina of Time definitely fit that mould. And I think that's both worked you know both absolutely worked but where they went with final fantasy i'm so 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 glad in a way it went away from nintendo yet you know we we talk about this yet nintendo weren't (laughs) they they had a few franchises up their sleeve as i said japan what was coming out of that japanese main nintendo studio was very very quiet until the Shachinka uh, trade show in 1995, in the November, we finally see what the N64 is all about. These are not just tech demos. These are game footage. This is game footage. And let's go over to Mr. Dominic Diamond, who will tell us a bit more. It is the most powerful games machine in the world. 
It has a new controller that offers a different gaming experience, and it promises next-generation versions of some of the most popular titles ever. It's Nintendo's Ultra 64, and it was unveiled last week at the Shoshinki Show in Tokyo, along with demos of 13 games in development, and here exclusively for the first time on TV, all 13 of them. Super Mario 64, the wee mustachioed guy goes all 3D on us. Mario Kart R, the top Super NES game, and now goes four-player mental. Don't know what the R stands for, though. Kirby Ball at 64, he's still fat, he still looks like a balloon, but now he's all 3D texture map polygons. Wave Race 64 looking suspiciously like Wipeout. Pilot Wing 64, you may be noticing some kind of running theme in the titles here. Next up, Boggy Boogie, you guessed it, 64. And amazingly, a game that doesn't have 64 in the title, Blast Dozer, Top Mechanical Buggy Action Ahoy! Shadows of the Empire provides the obligatory Star Wars tie-in for those of us who still think Mark Hamill's a well-adjusted human being. And GoldenEye, the game conversion of the latest James Bond Uber, looking suspiciously like Virtua Cop. Body Harvest, no idea what this one's all about, but it involves a lovely wee man running around there, lots of big things chasing after him. Creator features great views of dinosaurs' bottoms. And Star Fox 64, the updated version of the Super NES Classic, which I never actually liked. Finally, the Ultra 64 version of possibly the greatest game ever, The Legend of Zelda, once again, 64. Anderson of a console is due for release next spring with a target price of 200 quid. Four controller ports come as standard on the machine, but perhaps the most interesting aspect of the hardware is the controller itself. An obvious innovation is the central 3D stick, which allows precision paired in 60-degree movement. It also controls the speed of the character, both essential tools for negotiating the next generation of 3D games. And because it's all 3D, different views can be chosen by pressing any of the four yellow buttons. Covered in fire buttons as well. Cheeky left ones, cheeky right ones, and downright saucy underneath ones. With gameplay as complex as this, it's no surprise the controller also features a memory card, which enables you to save game positions and customize controller settings. Little wonder then that much of the excitement surrounding the machine quite literally comes from the gaming possibilities offered by it. However, the excitement of seeing the machine for the first time was tempered by the fact there was only two demos that punters could actually play. Kirby Ball looked pretty ropey, but even though it was only 50% complete, Super Mario 64 showed all the hallmarks of being an instant classic. The opening screen gives some idea of what's in store, featuring a fully rendered Mario head that players can manipulate in real time. Ooh, hours of fun there, I'll bet. Games journalist Gus Swan was one of the lucky few to have a go. Mario 64 is quite a departure from Mario games in terms of gameplay, just by the virtue of it being in 3D. But it's not so different that you won't recognize the style and movement and the type of actions you'd expect it to perform. The bit that caught everyone's imagination and, and really 
made people happier about the machine was um, the Bowser boss. Just the speed of the graphics and the ingenuity of the effect was really quite different to what we've seen before in a platform game. Um, one of its most striking graphical effects is um, the ability to take objects, polygon objects, close to the player without them becoming pixelated and blocky, as many players will be familiar with in, in other platforms. The stage we saw the game was said to be 50% complete, and that perhaps explained why the levels were more sparse, and there wasn't any levels where you were panicked with the amount of enemies or terrible jumps that you had to, to overcome. The size of the game may be up to 150 stages, and from what we've played with them already, it looks as if it's going to be extremely playable, um, with lots of hidden features as you progress, so I don't have any doubts it's a great game. So, after a year of leaving the next generation field open to Sony and Sega, the biggest video games company in the world is poised for a truly formidable comeback. Admittedly, the games themselves, costing 60 quid, are well behind schedule. But from what we've seen so far, it looks like when it finally arrives in April, the Ultra 64 will be quite smart as it happens. <sighs> I think this is the second time I've got Games Master on this podcast. <laughs> Um, I mean, like you had Mario 64 being announced, and I'll, I'll put the video in the description as well. You know, you had Mario 6, Super Mario 64, and it looked almost in its fully formed state. It was, it was just there, and as it, as you heard towards the end of that, it was 50% complete. It was 50% complete, and then you had Super Mario Kart 64, which was not super mario 60 kart 64 sorry super mario kart 64 it was super mario kart r because you know they had to put 64 at the end because it was the style of the time um you had kirby bowl 64 um you had wave race 64 which was looking as dominic said derry total wipeout <laughs> sorry derry wipeout um derry derry wipeout in fact it could be Wipeout, <laughs> um, which everyone knows my love for what Wave, Wave Race 64 would be. You had Pilot Wing 64 looking almost complete. You had Buggy Boogie 64. You had Blast Dozer, which it looks pretty complete. Blast Corps did. Uh, there was a couple of things extra. Another one that looked pretty much done was um, Star uh, Shadows of the Empire. That, that looks... As if, as we got it in half. Obviously, we don't know about the other levels of development. Another game that looked pretty much done was Goldeneye. We've already been onto Goldeneye before, where it was almost a last-minute decision to go. Ah, let's let's stick multiplayer in. <laughs> and as we've said already in this podcast, one game that went through development hell, and we will be coming on to a sole special on this. This deserves a podcast to itself. Was Body Harvest? Um, 
<laughs> I'm not going to go into it too much now, but I'm so looking forward to that 25th anniversary. I think it... Because th th this is being announced now. It doesn't come out for another two years. It doesn't come out until 1998. This is how much of a disaster um, Nintendo made it. Look, look, we're not going to go into that now, but I mean the back and forth. You can see it in those pictures. It was pretty much done. But maybe because they had lost Final Fantasy, they wanted it to be a uh, RPG rather than a shooter. So it was back and forth. And I, I, it, I think to me, you know, we'll do more of a deep dive into it, but it may well be because they had lost uh, Squaresoft uh, themselves. Um, now, there's a couple of games that look a lot sharper, and one of them definitely is Star Fox 64. That looks very sharp. I mean, not, I'm not putting down. Everyone knows my love for Lilac Wars slash Star Wars 64. Yeah, I did the death run a couple weeks ago. Yay! Um, but I mean, I, I mean, it looks really sharp on this video. It looks really good. Um, the, the boss looks a bit polygony, um, but it looks really, really good. And that would be released a year later. Um, and and we hear sort of other bits in there. Oh, we we had creator as well, which was dinosaur of some sort. Maybe that was the Mario Paint bits that came across to the 64DD. <sighs> yeah, again, podcast for another time. <laughs> but the, the, I love it in this that they they're really promoting the controller. You know, because at the time, look. We've discussed this a lot in the past, the N64 controller. Um, to keep this very fitting to the Discord at the moment or the chat in uh, the uh, streams, it's the Marmite. Get what I did there. The Marmite, Pink Lithium, Marmite. Marmite of the uh, controller universe. But at the time, it was so revolutionary to have... The L and R button at the top, the shooting button, you had the Z button underneath, you had the C buttons, which, as we know, in the early inception of the console were very much used as a camera angle uh, to change camera angles. Obviously, that would change to items and moves later on. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was revolutionary. Let's stop putting down the poor controller. Poor thing. And then we come to the N64. It's... As I said, we are recording this on the, uh, the actual 25th anniversary. It's the 23rd today. And, um, yeah, it was launched in uh, Japan on the 23rd of June, 1996. And it sold out instantly. Like, 300,000 units gone. Like, gone. To the point of that they... They scrambled around and got another 200,000 units out. Gone. Then they got another 700,000 units out. And then millions more. And I mean, th they were panicking. There was real problems with the shortages in Japan. And they knew the Juggernaut, which would be the US release, was just around the corner. And I mean... the you've got these items, which if you haven't ever seen an N64 controller... See if you hear this in the background. Ha <laughs> ha, what a sound. The N64 controller, uh, cartridges, apologies, itself. You know, I've got a Japanese cart in front of me. 
they are not just um, regionally locked in the way of PAL and NSTC. Um, you've got physical locking of the cartridges as well. So with the Japanese cart, it's like the PAL carts of where the positioning of the uh, the the squares in the middle are. So there's a little bit inside the N64 that hard locks these. You can remove it. Uh, you can remove it just to make you aware. But with the US ones, the US ones were in completely different position. Completely different position. So that meant that they weren't just regionally locking these to, depending if it was PAL or NSTC, these were being hard locked. These were being hard locked. So I don't know if they were preempting a load of trips uh, to Japan <laughs> to go and raid whatever the Japanese had uh, to go and get your hands on an N64 before. But I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a... I don't know. I could be wrong. I haven't done research into this yet. Is Were there other consoles that were hard-locked? I'm not too sure. And then, obviously, you had the releases in uh, Europe on... Uh, Europe excluding France. There's a whole story about France, and it's very politically... I, I was trying to summarise it. Uh, before we go on to the dates, France did not get it let until later than Germany, uh, UK, and the rest of Europe. Uh, there was this massive dispute between Nintendo France and Nintendo, the company itself. And it, at one point, it looked like France weren't going to get the console at all. So that is why there was a French console as well as a European console, which baffles me again. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a whole different story about that. We'll maybe come back visit that because to summarize it it was like oh my god this is a podcast in its own <laughs> but eventually it was launched uh in europe excluding france which we'll get it later on uh in uh, europe and australia on march uh, 1997 and it was released in uh september 29 1996 in the uh in the americas um so do you know what it, it was <sighs> It's weird, isn't it? Because if you have a look, you know, if you look at how many were sold, 39 million, uh, you know, it, I couldn't find how many were sold in its uh, launch. All I could find were uh, Japan, which was the 300,000 that they had made. Um, if you're looking at its, you know, standing at this point, uh, I think it's very optimistic for Nintendo. Um, we know what eventually happens. We know what eventually happens. But I think it looks really optimistic for Nintendo at this point. You know, you've got some great titles on the horizon. You've got agreements with LucasArts, which we'll go into in other podcasts, to create exclusive games for them. You know, Star Wars had just released the uh, remasters, and Star Wars just was just about to go through a massive surge in popularity again after sort of been a very cult thing even before 1996 so you know you had agreements with rare rare had some great ideas up their sleeve you know that they were already developing banjo kazooie uh they knew that it would be delayed so they created a little cart game called timber tiger racing it's not diddy kong um <laughs> they you know because they knew that that would be delayed you know they had ideas with other ips creating new ips for nintendo 
You had DMA Design, who were creating, uh, had ideas in the background to create, you know, unique, different games. You had, you had so many acclaim, you know, with the Turok series. You know, you had Midway with some great ideas as well. I, I think that this was a really optimistic time. We know how it turned out, but it looked really bright for Nintendo. Now, let's go into how I was feeling at the time. Because I got my N64. He sat here. I'm going to tap him. There you go. Lovely. Um, I got my N64 sat here. I got that in September 1998. So I I could have got anything. I could have got a Saturn. I had friends who had Saturns. Uh, my friend David had a Saturn. Uh, I could have got a um, PlayStation. A majority of my friends, though, had an N64. And... Going on to that release. So I knew one friend. Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. He got uh, his N64. Must have been Christmas 1997. And I went over his. And seeing Super Mario 64 for the first time, I was completely blown away. We will go into that a bit more into the mini history of Mario. Completely blown away. And then we went to the local WH Smiths and we got Lilac Wars completely blown away. I mean, if you're looking at which console made me go wow the most, it was the N64. Every time, like the graphics on there, if we're looking in silicon graphics, did they succeed? Yes. Was it to the same level when they announced um, Project Reality? Maybe not. Um, but... I, I think, <laughs> I personally think they did succeed. Because I had played Worms, but I had Worms for the Meg Drive. I'd seen Grand Theft Auto and thought it was really cool, but it didn't blow me away graphically. You know, but seeing, let's say, Lilac Wars, seeing Zelda Ocarina of Time for the first time, seeing... Super Mario 64, seeing Blast Corps, Nintendo had it. I mean, they had it. And it's not a matter of who won and who lost. Because there's a reason why I'm sat here now talking about the Nintendo 64. And I'm sure there is an equivalent podcast out there about the PlayStation 1. Everyone succeeded. Maybe not the Saturn. No, checking. Everyone succeeded for different ways. Yeah, the Nintendo 64, iconic, iconic libraries. One of the smallest libraries there are, but an iconic library. The PlayStation 1 was groundbreaking. Yes, it was not as graphically pleasing as the N64. I'll put it out there. But it was groundbreaking. The Saturn, its legacy is really based upon... It bringing over some of those arcade ports to me. You know, some of those arcade ports with Saturn and the Dreamcast afterwards, you know, that's where Sega went down the route. Maybe it was the right thing to do. Maybe it was the wrong thing to do. Probably the wrong thing to do. But the Saturn had its place. But we'll learn more as this journey goes on. Because that, ladies and gentlemen, was the very, <laughs> very cliff way of doing a mini-history of Project Reality. Let's see where we go next, eh? 
so that was fun that was a lot of info that was a lot of info and i i did skim over a lot of things because it would have been this podcast you know i think it was gonna hit about one hour and 15 i i mean the original notes that i had i thought this is gonna be very wordy and i unfortunately i didn't get anybody on for this one because the only person i could think of is gonna be on the next one and i thought no i want to save his enthusiasm for that next one because i know he's gonna be really passionate about it um so yeah it's i i hope you did enjoy that i hope you did i did try and mix it up a bit you know i i did try and to see how the mini histories work with just me project reality was a good one to start off with um and happy birthday we are in the 25 years we're actually in this now i could have just done straight off the back of this the mini history of mario but i'm pushing that back until september so on the us launch we will have a mini history of Super Mario. And also, because there were three, because there were actually, there were three brands that, sorry, three games that came out on launch. One of them, we only see once on this console. And we don't see again, which is Pilot Wings. Pilot Wings will be coming along on the U, uh, European launch. So on the US launch in September, we've got Super Mario 64. And then next year on the uh european launch then we'll have pilot wings so we will have a mini history of both of those now next podcast we're going back to it it's been a couple weeks away we're going back to a bit of battle for jinjos and we're going to do some platforming ladies and gentlemen yay uh i have teased this so some of you might already know however the next two games for the Battle for Jinjos will be, firstly, a game that's revolutionary. I mean, a toy company. We'll go into this first. A toy company creating a computer game to sell toys. I mean, but it worked. Earthworm Jim 3D. Now, did it work as well as the uh, 2D platformers? We'll find out together, shall we? But this will be going off against another game that made its jump from 2D to 3D. And that game is... Rayman 2. The Great Escape. Oh, oh, saucy. It's a bit saucy. Oh, no, I'm really looking forward to this one. Um, so the next battle for Jinjos will be two weeks time. Uh, we'll be doing Rayman 2 versus uh, uh, Earthworm Jim 3D. Um, so make sure you stick around for that. Make sure as well, if you are about on the old Twitch, come and give us a follow. Uh, yeah, come and follow us uh, on Fridays and Sundays, 8.30 to 11, where we will be playing uh, random games on the Fridays. However, now we start our new uh, stream uh so sunday stream we've completed custom robo now so we will be playing every sunday the world is not enough i don't think it's going to be as long as zelda or um uh, custom robo <laughs> even though i will put it out there 
Custom Robo is in my top 10 now. I mean, it's in my top 10. Oh my God. If you've never played it, there is a patch of it. If you do, you know, there's an English patch. We're still waiting for version two to get an English patch. Uh, if you need it, just ping me an email to say, hi Cliff, you can just forward me that, could you? If you've got yourself an EverDrive, I'll be happily to ping it to you. But the patches are out there. Go and play it. I mean, it was a great game. Um, but we're going to a bit of shooty, shooty James Bondy. As uh, Martin from Now and Then 64 said, no, not that, James. You want James Bond? Here's uh, The World Is Not Enough. That's the one you want. It. No, no, not that one. <laughs> so... Obviously, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do on the Twitter at N64 Life Podcast, on the Instagram at N64 Life Podcast, as well as uh, the Gmail, which is N64 Life uh, Podcast at gmail.com. Um, so get in touch. If not, if you go to the Twitch, there is a direct link through to our Discord channel. Come and join the Jinjos and the Cartridge Blowers as we just discuss random things and usually just, yeah, Formula One's a big one on them. <laughs> But no, if you want to come and join the madness, please do. Thank you very much for your support today. Happy birthday, the Nintendo 64. I feel really old. It's 25 years. Anyway, I'll see you very, very soon. extremely fast it's coming straight at us I've never seen anything like it before action racing fun adventure Nintendo 64 the fastest most powerful games console on earth now at 99.99